www.ncpb.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. So glad that we can be here together. And so for the next hour, if you have a question, as you've been studying God's word or an issue in your personal life or ministry that you're looking for biblical counsel or application, feel free to call us again directly. The number is uh, 525-1859. It's an 843 area code, 525-1859 or toll free at 877. The call letters WAGP 980 or some people prefer just to email us here directly into the studio. And we're happy to receive your email that way. And the email is TBL, that stands for The Bible Line, TBL at WAGP.net. All right, Rick, great to be here today. Let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right, Pastor, uh, Will from Douglasville, Georgia writes, what is the role of the Holy Spirit once we are all in heaven? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I've just finished a course on pneumatology. I think that aired, didn't it, on our station on our Thursday Institute? It did. Yeah, so uh, that might be a course that you would want to consider taking. And among other things, we not only look at the personality and the deity of the Spirit, but we look at the role of the Holy Spirit in different time frames. Uh, in the creation of the world, we saw his role in the Old Testament and how while he was at work, he works. he worked in a very different and distinct way than he does in what we typically refer to the church age. And so on the day of Pentecost, a new era opened for the spirit of God to work in people's lives and not just in the lives of believers, but in unbelievers, because when he, the spirit of truth comes, Jesus promised he'd convict the world of sin, righteousness and judgment. We saw once again, his role changes during the time of the great tribulation. He's uh, called the restrainer, one of his titles in scripture. He's still at work during the tribulation period. People come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation, especially it appears people who've never heard the gospel before with clarity and in power. And so his ministry is very much at work, but his restraining ministry against sin is loosened. One, the church is removed and even a weak church has some influence of salt and light. But the fact is, is that the Holy Spirit withholds back sin and he will let man really have his way during that time frame. And then we looked at his role during the millennial age and then finally uh, in eternity future. Now, I will say there's not a whole lot that is said about the role of the spirit in eternity future. Uh, but we'll definitely see things and know things more fully then. Paul said to the Corinthians, for we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Uh, now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I've been fully known. So there's some things that we can see only dimly now, but they'll be with perfect clarity in eternity future. 
And I'm sure the Holy Spirit, who's the teacher, the illuminator, is going to play a major role in that. Um, Likewise, you know, God tells us that the Holy Spirit has sealed us forever. He will be with you forever, Jesus said. So if he's with us forever, then apparently he continues to work and minister through us in eternity future, even in our resurrected bodies. So um, again, there's a lot of silence there, but we see the Holy Spirit involved very much in the book of Revelation. He is mentioned 14 different times as we will work through the Revelation. If you were with us last Sunday, we're doing a verse by verse exposition and we just cracked the door in chapter five. And really the uh, scene in Revelation four and five is a Trinitarian scene because you see the work of uh, God the Father sitting on the throne. And last week we saw the Father um, answering the question that's called out, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the Father hands the scroll to God the Son. And in a few weeks uh, we'll come to the four horsemen of the apocalypse and we will see God the Son begin to open each and every scroll one by one by one by one by one. But we also see the work of the Holy Spirit in uh, Revelation chapter 5. We read, and I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Uh, So the Holy Spirit is involved in the supervising role of what is taking place on the earth. And of course, uh, when you come to the end of Revelation, there's a new heaven and a new earth. And since each member of the Trinity was involved in the creation of the original heaven and earth, I suspect that each member will be involved again. But it is true. There's a lot of silence, but someday um, we will know the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But those things that are revealed to us today, we can know and bank on. And again, someday we will see very, very clearly all that the Spirit of God is going to do. So good question. Appreciate that. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's By the Line, and we just received a call from an individual who would like you to please explain 1 Peter 4, 6. All right. Let me just turn to 1 Peter here for just a moment. Uh, It's an important passage, and 1 Peter is an incredible epistle. Uh, He deals in really the chapters one, two, and halfway through three with, um, well, one and two largely with uh, the salvation of the believer. And then in the middle of two, all the way through the middle of three, he deals with the submission of the Christian. And then finally, beginning in the middle of chapter three through the end of the book, he deals with our suffering. So our salvation, picturing our new birth, uh, our submission, which is a picture of the new conduct that God calls us to. And then suffering. That's not a popular message, but it's part of God's will for our life. And it speaks of our new responsibility. So we're basically in the third section of the book when you raise this question. And uh, let me pick it up in verse one. So you have a feel for the flow. Uh, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, 
but for the will of God. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. And they malign you, but they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Now, unfortunately, this is a passage that has been abused. Remember, context is everything. Just like in real estate, the three key things are location, location, location. The same could really be said in reference to understanding the Bible. Context or location, location, location is very, very important. Uh, There was an evangelical leader by the name of uh, Clark Pinnock. And of course, I use the term evangelical around his name very loosely. Uh, He, among other people, had used this passage to say that uh, God gives people after they're saved a second chance to be saved. And so um, he argued that, you know, if you die without hearing the gospel, God will later on uh, give you a chance to hear the gospel that you might live. But uh, that is not consistent in any respect uh, with what the Bible reveals, because it's appointed for a man to die once. And after that comes the judgment. So you don't have another chance after you're saved. And he used another passage in conjunction with this. Um, He used a a little bit um, later on where uh, Peter speaks of the fact that, you know, the people in Noah's day had the gospel preached to them. And so, um, again, the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. And there's no way that it can possibly mean that. So sometimes Uh, You have to begin with what the Bible, uh, what you know it cannot say. Uh, Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides upon him. So when you think of salvation, there are really three tenses to it. Uh, We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the presence of sin. And someday we will be saved from the very... um, presence of sin. One we call justification, where we're saved from sin's penalty by our faith in Christ. The other is called sanctification, where God is conforming us into the image of Christ. And someday we will be glorified. So um, he tells us here in verse five, but they, the unsaved who malign you, shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So the unsaved may judge us now, but one day uh, Peter's point is, is God's going to judge them. When Jesus comes, some of the lost will be uh, living and some of the lost will be dead, but they are all going to be judged, the living and the dead. And so in the famous creeds, we use that expression. Uh, So we are, of course, to be ready to give an account, as he already said in chapter three, Uh, for the hope that's within us. We call it a defense. It's not apologizing for what we believe, but an apologia defense is uh, affirming why we believe what we believe. And God has called us to have compassion on those that are lost, to care for their souls, to faithfully preach the gospel to them. 
because whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call upon him in whom they have not heard? So uh, he reminds us first that the Lord is, is ready to punish people. Judgment day is coming. Then verse six for the gospel has underscore in your mind, the tense has for this purpose been preached. Notice the tense, even to those who are dead, that they are judged in the flesh as men, that they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And again, some have used, you know, this verse of scripture uh, to, to say that they get another chance after they die. But look carefully at the verse. Peter does not say the gospel is for this purpose being preached, but he says the gospel has for this purpose been preached. They're dead now, but they were alive when they heard the gospel. So the Bible is very clear. Again, it's appointed for a man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. And you have to remember the context. That's why I set the context of the whole book. We're in the section of suffering, the Christian suffering. Uh, the opening chapter and a half uh, deals with the believer's salvation. Then he moves to our submission. Then he moves to our suffering. So he's writing to Christians who are under grave persecution. Some had been mistreated. Some had been threatened. Some had been martyred. And verse six really is writing, especially in this section of the book, to those who have been martyred, not the lost dead, but the saved dead. Lost men judge them while they're on earth in the form of persecution. And so they're put to death um, because the world's ready to persecute people. They hate people. Um, but we are to be ready to persevere that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So the point that Peter is making is that while their body has died through the judgment of men, though obviously someday it will be resurrected, that's our promise, their spirit nonetheless is very much alive in the spiritual realm. Well, why is he telling us this? Obviously not for the benefit of those who have died, but for the benefit of those of us who are still alive, who's reading this letter. He's saying, in essence, don't worry about their persecution. They may kill you to use Jesus's words, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who's able to destroy <coughs> both body and soul in hell. So the most the unbeliever can do is take you out in terms of they can wipe out your body, but they cannot kill the real you. They can't harm the soul. And they may laugh at us now, but there'll be no laughing in the judgment. Every mouth will be shot. Um, by the way, if this is something you want to study in a little more detail, I did preach through the book of first and second Peter. And if you go to search the org and uh, click on first Peter, I think I would have broken up this section, probably first Peter four, one through six, because seven starts kind of a new uh, pericope. And so um, just go to that sermon and you'll get an hour long answer where I walk through it more carefully. But I think I, I've given you the gist of what, what is happening there. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right. Very good. 843-525-1859. And uh, we did get a question from another listener this morning in Daniel 7. Uh, why did his dream so greatly trouble him? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a powerful dream. And again, um, to this caller who's called in, I've just preached the book of, of Daniel. And so I, I go through, I think I spent a few sermons just in the seventh chapter, but it's, it's a, it's a powerful dream because he, among other things is really trying to discern the future of Israel. 
and he is trying to understand all that is going to transpire. And so in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary. And then he, he describes the dream in his mind. And of course, um, while I was contemplating and he describes what happens, the horns, which we noted last Sunday, if you're with us in our study of Revelation, this would have been a good passage to illustrate the, the horns of Revelation 5 from. Um, there are symbols of authority and one little horn, this vicious horn comes up amongst three and pulls it out by its roots. So there's a, there's really a, a powerful, um, scene that is here so much so that in verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So this is interesting because when Daniel is given dreams by someone like King Nebuchadnezzar, God gives him the ability to interpret the dream. But here in the seventh chapter, Daniel gets the dream and he seeks wise counsel as to the meaning of the dream. And of course, it's, he's relieved because he begins to see God's sovereignty through these dreams. And ultimately, of course, there is this picture of the Ancient of Days, a reference to God the Father and the Son of Man who's presented one coming like on the clouds and, um, and, and he sovereignly rules and he takes charge over the kingdoms of this world. So, yeah, it's, it is an alarming scene if, if, if you saw the viciousness of this one-horned creature who we will discover is the Antichrist in the book of Revelation and the vicious approach that he takes, it was frightening. Uh, some dreams, you ever have a dream where you're just so frightened, you're just kind of like frozen in the dream, can't even move. Well, he had a frightening dream, but the revelation of Scripture lifted that fright and that alarm so that he could understand its application. But again, I, I spend, I think, two hours, over two hours just on this chapter. So you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org and listen to the messages out of Daniel chapter 7. Very good. A listener from uh, Trumbull, Connecticut writes, I know I'm saved by the gift of grace from God and in faith in Jesus Christ, our Savior. I truly enjoy speaking about the Lord at work and with the help of the Holy Spirit, witness to my patience. I have been memorizing John 1, 1 through 16. Lately, I feel I am not being effective in my witnessing. I believe I have the spirit of pride given my reaction sometimes to things in my life. I do believe the devil is trying to discourage me and I want victory. How can I get delivered from this terrible spirit? Well, I don't think you have a, a spirit like a demonic spirit indwelling you as a Christian, but uh, can we struggle with pride? Of course we can. And so God admonishes us that he gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And of course, uh, learning more and more that any success that we have never really ultimately comes just from us, but it comes from God. Uh, we were not saved by any human merit that we accomplished. We we're saved by the sheer grace and mercy of God Almighty. Uh, we didn't even start the relationship. The Lord took the initiative we love him because he first loved us. When, when God comes into the garden and he asks, so where are you, Adam? God obviously never asks questions to get information because he's omniscient. But he asks questions to reveal truths to us. And God was showing 
Adam that he was far away, that he was in shame and in sin and and running and hiding from God. And so God takes the initiative and he has to because as Ephesians 2 uh, illuminates for us, we are dead in our trespasses and sins before our conversion. So dead men have no capacity to respond. So even when you understand God's sovereign grace in your life, that salvation did not begin with you, it began with the Lord. Uh, It wasn't your reading some book or you uh, coming up with the bright idea that I'm going to read the Bible or, um, you know, God created in your heart any kind of interest, whether it was for apologetics or the reading of his word. It all began with God. Now you have a free will to do what you will do with what God shows you, but it begins with the living God. And so the same is true in our sanctification. As you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so you are to walk in him. How did you receive Christ? Well, there was admit where a point in your life where you admitted basically spiritual bankruptcy and you cast your full allegiance on the Lord Jesus and his finished work, the gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection, the power of God to save you. Well, so now you walk in him. There is that same attitude. God, I'm helpless. As Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, that in terms of having any success, it has to come from God. Now I have to yield my will. That's a decision. So when you see success in your ministry, uh, do you give God thanks for it? If you do lead someone to Christ, you say, Oh Lord, thank you that you uh, used me in that way. What if, what if you don't lead someone to Christ? Are you disappointed in yourself? Well, you shouldn't be if you were doing what you did in the power of the Holy spirit. Bill Bright used to say, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ back in the 1950s, that successful witnessing is simply taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. So if you are spirit-filled and God gives you an open door, and we should pray for those open doors. Sometimes um, we don't have opportunities like God would want us to have for the simple reason we're not asking for those opportunities. Like James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Or sometimes when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. But Paul, for instance, when he wrote to the church at Coloss in the fourth chapter, he said, look, pray for us as well, that God may open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I am also in imprisonment in order that I may make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. So he prays for two things. One is for opportunity. Now, on the one hand, it is true that we've already been commanded to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. But on the other hand, uh, the scripture teaches that, you know, there are individuals within this 7.6 billion world population that God wants us to touch. And so the question is, who? who, who today, Lord, is there anyone today that you would have me to speak with? And we need to look for those opportunities. And also we're helpless like Paul is. God help me to make the gospel clear. Now, obviously, if you don't share the necessary information, the gospel won't be clear. And so some Christians, you know, they'll give a presentation, the gospel. And, you know, I used to train Campus Crusade for Christ staff members for years and years on how to share the gospel. And sometimes, you know, I would go with them and I would just listen. And, well, what do you think? Pastor Carl, or they didn't call me Pastor Carl. It was just Carl then, you know, how, how did, how did, um, 
how did I do? And, you know, I would give them an honest evaluation. And sometimes my evaluation was, well, if I were a non-Christian, I would not have been able to become a Christian through your presentation of the gospel. How could I make such a statement? Because there are certain prerequisites that a person needs to know in order to make the gospel clear, in order to hear what God is asking them to believe. Uh, I have a little presentation. It's uh, called, Would You Like to Have God as, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? And it's just a little booklet that's kind of a summary of the essentials that a person needs to know in order to believe the gospel. So you have to know what those are. So some Christians are like, um, you know, beating themselves up. Well, you memorize John one, one through 16. Well, that's a great text to memorize though. I wouldn't say that the whole plan of salvation is in John one, one through 16. Now, when you get to John three and Nicodemus and the brazen serpent lifted in the wilderness, then, you know, you have a, a clearer picture of the plan of salvation but just knowing John 1, 1 through 16 is not what necessarily an unbeliever needs to hear to be saved. So you need to ask, you know, what are the non-negotiable essential components? And one, am I sharing that? And if you need some help with that, you know, call Search the Scriptures and say, I'd like to have that booklet. Or you can go online and we have an online presentation where you'd like to know God is your friend. And, and what I am doing is going through that booklet in explaining the plan of salvation. So one, you have to know the critical information, but when you give that information, you have to know that, look, unless the Holy Spirit meets me and unless the Holy Spirit speaks through me, unless he empowers what my message and unctionizes what I'm going to say, uh, it's going to fall on deaf ears. So we go in the power of the Holy Spirit, but then we leave the results to God. So you see, sometimes we envision what we think uh, should happen. And of course you want to see people respond in, uh, to your witness and for people to find the forgiveness that you have found. But it doesn't always happen on the first preaching of the gospel. Sometimes it does, like with the church at Thessalonica. Paul said, that, you know, the first time we preached to you, you, you turned to God from your idols. Um, so they, the very first time, became believers, but not always. And not everyone who hears it clearly and in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus taught in the parable of the sower, will be converted. He, he describes a man who goes out and sows seed. And in three of the four seeds, there's no salvation. And only in the fourth seed is there genuine conversion. So not everyone is going to respond. And so sometimes a Christian will share their gospel with, you know, three people and oh, nobody became a believer. I give up. Well, God doesn't ask you first to be fruitful. He asks you to be faithful as you go, make disciples, not go, therefore make disciples, but as you go, make disciples, it's a present participle as you're going, as you're going, where, as you're going everywhere, you're going, make disciples. It's not do discipleship. People have hid behind that banner to escape doing personal evangelism. It's make converts of all nations. And the fact that we're making converts, new believers, is further um, underscored by you baptize these new believers in the name of the triune God, and then you teach them. And now that process might be discipleship, uh, where we're instructing them, we're bringing them under the gifts of other people who can instruct them, but uh, that's the building side. But 
as we go, we're to make disciples. And this is why I think America is going down the tubes. The average Christian has stopped sharing his faith. Used to be that the average evangelical church had an outreach night or where they would give people an opportunity to come and hear or for people to go and share. And, but those are virtually non-existent now in the American church. And the whole approach of, uh, you know, learning how to share your faith. And we're going to do, I have it on the schedule for 2018, another, um, if the Lord tarries, another opportunity to train people how to share the gospel. So we need to be about it. And as we do it faithfully, sooner or later, you'll see someone. So you stop at three. Why don't you stop at 33? Take 33 people through the plan of salvation. I guarantee you're probably going to find one. Um, if you're again, going in the power of the Holy spirit and that one will probably find five because they're a new Christian and in their whole world are, are lost people. So anyway, it's a, I appreciate the spirit of that question because what I'm hearing is you want God to use you. And that's, that, that's great. Very good. We had another caller that was, uh, uh, calling in to find out if you knew anything about, uh, what the reformed evangelical church believes and teaches. Well, um, again, you know, terminology is everything. Uh, even the term evangelical today can mean a lot of different things to different people. There are people who go around today who call themselves evangelical and nothing could be further from the truth in terms of historical evangelical theology. So, um, the label sometimes, you know, goes back to, um, you know, early days, but maybe it's an empty label. Like there was a Lutheran evangelical church. There's nothing evangelical about it. By evangelical, I mean, not just that we do evangelism, but there were certain non-negotiables that are affirmed, uh, like the deity of Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, the substitutionary atonement, uh, the bodily resurrection, Christ's physical actual return to judge the living and the dead. Th- those are kind of non-negotiables. Well, the Reformed Evangelical Church, I think it's also called like the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, uh, was founded in the late 1990s. Uh, what makes them, quote unquote, Reformed are they are people typically from Presbyterian Reformed and Reformed Baptist backgrounds. So by Reformed theology, it's an interesting term in and of itself, but uh, t- at least today by Reformed theology, it's Calvinistic. Someone they are saying uh, agree with the, uh, the major leaders and teachers of the Protestant Reformation. And of course, they typically identify with John Calvin. So it's a whole system of theology uh, that uh, unfortunately, I think some of it is just wrong. Uh, they have the gospel. So we're not talking about uh, this is an evangelical denomination that doesn't have uh, evangelical roots. It has the gospel. And in that sense, it's, it's evangelical. But on the other hand, um, to me, it's some of its hyper Calvinism is just in error. For instance, they would teach that the church has taken the place of, of Israel, that God's done with Israel. Uh, they tend to be five points like most reformed Baptists. Uh, so they would affirm things that probably this caller would agree with like eternal security and post conversion baptism. But on the other hand, they might affirm some things that you don't agree with. 
Uh, you might not ascribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, or you might not uh, ascribe to, um, you know, five points of Calvinism. And really Calvinism, we think of it just in terms of, you know, salvation, but it really permeates every avenue of um, of theology. It, it permeates eschatology because of your view of Israel, the doctrine of last things. So even the way you interpret the book of Revelation tends to be very unique or different. And so very often some of the reformed theologians either said it's a, it's a historical book all the way to the 19th chapter. Everything in Revelation 1 through 18 has already taken place. It's his, uh, they, that's called preterism. They take a past view or they take the historical approach where they say, well, the book of Revelation is being fulfilled in the church age, but they don't take a literal plain interpretation because they have a system of theology that they carry into their view of the end days and how things should, should unfold. So um, that's a really short answer. And some would say I haven't been fair to them, but I'd, I'd say number one, they're brothers in Christ for that. I'm thankful they're preaching the gospel um, but with that, uh, laid aside, there are some things that I wouldn't agree with them on and that's okay. We can agree to dif- disagree. Um, l- let's go on to the next uh, right. question. Pat from Bluffton, uh, called in yesterday and asked the following. She says, I found a series of questions entitled, what does the Bible say about the end of life at FocusOnTheFamily.com? These questions are answered by the Bible verses that follow the questions. However, regarding the following question, I don't understand what the answer is. According to them, could you please explain it to me? And this is the question. Is it acceptable for a Christian who is terminally ill to refuse available technology in order to let nature take its course and bring about a natural death? And then uh, they proceed to list three scripture verses, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 2, there's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth, and a time to die. Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And Psalm 139, 16, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me. Well, those are interesting verses. Obviously, they are are true. The days that were ordained for me, even before there was yet one, they're all written in God's book. Uh, that's a general, solid principle that God knows the day you're going to die, or at least the day that he ordained for you to die. But what if I, as a Christian, take my life? What if I choose to end my life early? And then have I fulfilled the days that God ordained for me? Obviously not. Uh, suicide is possible for a Christian. It's very rare. I think most people who commit suicide are lost, but the Bible um, does not dismiss. I think the possibility that a real Christian could commit suicide and real Christians have, and unfortunately, but they in essence did not live out the days that God had ordained for them. So take that same thought and let's apply it into this realm of uh, care for those who are extremely sick. It is true that there can be a time in a person's life where a machine can keep you alive and you can't stay alive on your own. Is that necessarily bad? No, obviously not. There are a lot of people who've been put on a machine who've maybe been in an accident. The machine keeps them alive until their body heals enough where their own body on their own can survive. 
So we would have to admit that there are obviously some situations where a machine in keeping an individual alive is, is permissible. Uh, sometimes machine is delaying the agony, uh, but God doesn't always call us um, not to suffer. Sometimes people don't want agony. And we live in a day of medical technology where we have things available to us that obviously were not available even 30 years ago. And so some of the end of life issues become uh, critical to some people and they express their wishes. You know, if my heart stops, I don't want you to revive me. Well, why not? (laughs) What if God wants you to live another? Look, I have an uncle Gene. He's 94 years old. His heart has stopped 10 times and he's been revived on 10 different occasions. And one time the fire department thought he was gone, but he came back. And so, you know, he still has potential opportunity to serve the Lord and for God to use him. So granted, there is a time to pull the plug. And so when there's no brain waves, none whatsoever, uh, the person's body may be breathing through the use of a machine, but not through his spinal cord connected to the brain. The person's gone. So that's not to say it wouldn't be wise to keep them alive for a certain number of days. If they're say an organ donor donor and someone's going to benefit from their kidneys or their lungs. Um, but you know, I think some Christians are a little loose in this and I, I've not read the website there, but you know, focus on the family is wrong on some things. They're not infallible. And there's some things that they've said over the years that have been really stupid. Um, and I'm not trying to be ugly because f- they've done far more good for the body of Christ, for the family than few organizations that I know. So there's some really good things. And they were, I think in their prime when Dr. Dobson was still at the head of the ship, he's obviously not any longer. And there's new staff and new leadership. Do I think they're heretical? No, if I thought they were heretical, we wouldn't play them on our station. But they have taken some positions that I think are just inaccurate. And um, maybe this position that they express, I don't think is full enough, maybe explains enough, you know, with just a few verses tacked on to the end. Well, how, how do you make a determination? And this is important. And of course, you go to the hospital these days and people want to know, well, you know, did they did they write it down in some kind of a living will, what their desires are and what they wanted? And uh, because more and more too, the hospitals uh, and the insurance companies don't want to pay for extended care. And honestly, if Obamacare is not fully rescinded, most people have no idea some of the end of life issues that would kick in in 2020. I don't think you'd want someone else making a decision for some of your loved ones uh, that based on the principles that are outlined in that document. But most people have never read the document, never read the issues. Guys voted on it with no idea what was even in it. Uh, what was that? I forgot, 2,800 pages. Um, that's not to say that uh, a congressman or a senator wouldn't have staff that would go through it carefully, understanding his positions and highlight certain positions, but most of them went in blind. And then when they had the opportunity to rescind it, uh, you know, they didn't. But really, you see, what that tells me is um, they were judge, making judgments concerning Obamacare, not purely on moral issues. There's a lot of moral issues that are in the Obamacare document. 
that if they're not rescinded, someone else is going to decide whether your loved one should stay alive. But it was purely economic. Well, we don't want to be too controversial because now, you know, your child can have, uh, you know, health care under your policy until he's 26. And I like that or I like this thing or that thing. And, um, you know, and it tells me they, they were driven more on less than moral convictions because if there were some really moral people and I didn't hear a single argument who would have stood up on the floor of the House or the Senate and said, look, if this thing stays in here. We're going to have committees in some hospitals determining whether your mother's going to stay alive and how much it costs and when do we pull the plug. And so there, there's some evil in that document, uh, but you don't really hear people addressing it on that issue. So anyway, I appreciate the question. Let's go to the next one. It's interesting the position you take because it really is something that we ought to all ascribe to is that, you know, as we make our decisions, we need to see, in particular, to end-of-life decisions, um, you know, is this individual or am I still available to be used for the Lord's work? That's right. And, and sometimes, you know, Christians have said, well, I don't want to be a burden to my loved ones, you know, and if I go home and I'm sick and they have to care for me, you know, I'm going to intrude in their life schedule. So what? That's Paul's point. He said, when you were young... Your parents took care of you. When they're old, you are to take care of them. The roles reverse. And then he says someone who doesn't care for his own is worse than an infidel, an unbeliever. And he applies it, not downward. We usually take that verse out of context, and it's a legitimate application. If I don't provide for the children God gave me and my wife, then I'm worse than an unbeliever. But actually, in the original context, it's, it's an application upwards. And sometimes, too, God wants people to suffer at the end of life because sometimes their suffering is a testimony of the greatness of God or a reminder of the consequences that sin brought into this world when Adam sinned and the creation fell. And, and God uses, you know, I think of one lady in our church who was with hospice for years and years. And a number of years ago, one of our uh, members, a Filipino lady had cancer and she saw member after member after member from community Bible church come in and love and care for this woman and minister to her needs And that led to her conversion. She'll spend an eternity in heaven because of it. So all suffering is not bad in this uh, Joel Osteen, feel good, uh, eliminate all suffering kind of society. It's just false teaching. And and we need to hone our thinking carefully in line with scripture. Amen. Well, our next caller would like to know if Adam was created in innocence, and if so, how could he sin? Well, innocence doesn't mean a lack of free will. So part of being made in the image and likeness of God is that you have a free will. So yes, he was created uh, creaturely perfect, different terms that are used to describe uh, his sinlessness. He, he, he was not sinful. All that God made was indeed good, but neither was Adam a robot. If God made Adam so that all he could do was obey, then he really would not be free. If if someone wires you to love them and programs you to love them, then that's not really love. Love is a choice of the will. And so there was a testing time and had Adam eaten from the tree of life and chosen that, 
he would have been eternally confirmed in righteousness because of a decision as an act of his free will that he made. But God warned, he said to Adam, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day, meaning the very day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. So he chose on that day with his eyes wide open, not deceived, according to Paul's commentary in 1 Timothy 2, to rebel against God. And he died that day. He died on the inside spiritually. He began to die on the outside physically. Now we're born dying. We are getting older and older and we're marching towards the grave. And if the problem's not fixed before we leave this life, the Bible teaches we die eternally. Uh, It's called eternal death. It's called the second death. And if you haven't been born twice, you will die twice, first physically, then eternally. But if you've been born twice, first physically, then again through a spiritual birth, in one sense, you'll only die once. Uh, in that the most that can happen to you if you're not raptured is physical death. Yeah, but you will live forever with the Lord in his presence rather than living forever apart from the Lord in a place of judgment. Right. Very good. And a listener wants to know the following. Uh, Gerald from Walterboro writes, is it biblical for a church or personnel committee to do an evaluation on the preaching slash teaching elder? I understand an evaluation of the potential candidate, but after the pastor has been serving already, it seems to be a reversal of roles. It seems more appropriate for the elders, if applicable, to evaluate each other and hold one another accountable. Your thoughts, please. Thanks. Well, I would, I would agree with that. You know, um, obviously the polity, the governing of churches differ, uh, from local church to local church in terms of congregational involvement, uh, direct or indirect or not at all. There's a pure elder ruled churches where the congregation never makes a single decision ever. Um, and then there are, there's pure congregationalism where no one can make a decision apart from the congregation and everything is voted on everything. Uh, obviously I think there's a balance in scripture. The Bible assumes in first Timothy five, he speaks of the elders who rule. Well, there's a, there's an implication that they're leading the church. Uh, They're called in uh, Acts chapter 20 when Paul gathers the Ephesian elders to guard the church, to lead the church, to feed the church. So there's leadership. The Bible assumes in passages like Hebrews chapter 13 where it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they give watch over your soul. So God, God tells us that we are to obey our leaders and to submit to them. That doesn't sound very American. Uh, I, I thought I voted on everything. Well, not if you follow the Bible. They keep watch over your souls. And then the, the remaining phrase in Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, is those who will give an account. So it's a grave responsibility. There's a stricter judgment for those who are in leadership. That's why, for instance, in the teaching office, which would be a role of an elder, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that you will incur a stricter judgment. There's greater accountability when there's leadership. And so while our salvation is free, the gift of God, there comes a day when our service is evaluated and it's evaluated on different levels to whom much is given, much is expected. And with greater responsibility comes greater accountability. 
And so, I, you know, in an ideal, you know, local church, there's some leaders who really lead. Uh, I know sometimes in, say, a, a Baptist church, there's a single elder form of government, though a lot of Southern Baptist churches are going back to their English roots and they've gone back to a plurality of elders. And that's really the picture in the New Testament. Uh, if any among you are sick, let him call for the elders, plural of the church, singular, not the elders, plural of the churches, not the elder of the church, but the elders, plural of the church. There's an assumption that there's a group of men that give leadership to the local assembly. And that's what God expects. That's what God wants. Now, in some churches, maybe the deacons do that, but then they typically don't really function as true deacons. But in either case, uh, that kind of evaluation should be done by godly men in the church. I mean, what if some guy in the church speaks up and he doesn't like the pastor because he, he thinks a divorced man um, can't be a deacon. Well, uh, what informs that? Uh, what kind of theology drives that? Is it a biblical theology or is it just a, a cultural theology? Or he doesn't like the fact that a woman can't teach a mixed Sunday school class or that a woman can't stand up and give a sermon in church. Well, what drives that? You know, Remember, everything you believe is based on something. You either made it up or read it in a book or the culture around you taught it, but it doesn't make it true. There's a lot of wrong things that Christians believe today, especially in this day of the 20 minute secret sensitive sermon where people are just totally ignorant of God's word. And it's, it's very, very sad. The hour that we live in, there is indeed a famine in the land for the word of God. And typically when there's not a um, something that's taught from God's word, people are going to feed on something, but it's not going to be God's word. And so their opinions are going to be based on something. So for instance, when Paul gives the qualifications for an elder and there are two central passages, there's, there's a number of other passages that would complement these like acts 20 that I mentioned that would really kind of give a visual illustration of what the elder's ministry looks like. But in first Timothy three and in Titus one, he talks about what an elder must be an overseer then must be. These aren't suggestions. These are things that have to, to some degree be true in the individual's life. Now we're not talking about perfect people. Paul will say to Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. But we are talking about a certain level of maturity and people who are progressing. And so he gives the qualifications and as he drops through the list, he says he must be able to teach, able to teach. Uh, in Titus chapter one, in the complimentary passage, it's interesting. It's said just a little bit different. Um, it says, holding fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching that he may be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Not every new Christian can do that. Only people who have matured to a certain level in their faith are going to be apt to teach sound in doctrine, uh, holding fast the faithful word in accordance with the teaching and to be able to exhort in, in sound doctrine and to refute error. Uh, that, that, that involves spiritual growth. And so when you open up that role to the whole congregation, you really have turned away from a clear 
conceptual picture that God gives for leadership in the church. You know, we often call these for the last 400 or so years, the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus. And it's not a bad designation. Obviously the application is far and wide to the whole church, but it's especially applicable to leaders in the church and what they are to do and how they are to let God's church function. So um, anyway, I, I hope that helps and we'll get you started. You might want to maybe just to dust off your own thinking, go to searchthescriptures.org and click on First Timothy and listen to First uh, Timothy chapter three in the sermon that I offer on the uh, first um, nine verses. I think you might find that, or first seven verses. I think you'd find that helpful. Okay, we've got a little less than three minutes. I think we can squeeze this one in. This person, Harold from Hinesville, simply wrote, transgender Christian in the church. That's all they wrote, and I guess maybe they're looking for your thoughts on that. You know, it's funny because um, uh, in the last Meet the Pastor, when I was over at the Bluffton campus, a little 10-year-old boy asked me that question, came up to me and said, you know, Pastor Carl, what if a transgender person came to Community Bible Church? Could they become a member? And I said, well, that's a great, great question. And first of all, of course, anyone is welcome and should be welcome through the door of your church, assuming they're not threatening the safety of the people who are there worshiping. Uh, they should be welcome. Prostitutes, drug addicts, drunks, homosexuals, transgender people, they should all be welcome. But being welcomed in the door is not the same as becoming a member. So, you know, a number of homosexual people have come to faith since I've been the pastor of Community Bible Church. And some I've been involved in their marriages where they have married someone of the opposite sex. Uh, Now, a lot of them don't broadcast their history. They wouldn't want their children to know that they were involved in that behavior. And some things that are done in darkness are better not mentioned. But with that said, um, God can save anyone when he gives a list of, you know, outward acts of the flesh. And he says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God in that list or things like homosexuality. And then he says, in such were some of you. Why? Because if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So um, someone else recently asked me, well, what if the transgender person got saved? What would you ask them to do? I would say, well, if their conversion is real, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. He would be willing to admit that what he did was an error. So if it was a man who became a girl or a girl who became a man, they would uh, say, look, what I did was evil. And I now identify with the gender of my birth. Now, you know, I know sometimes, you know, people have had an equipment change done through operations and you might can't always reverse some of those. But um, the fact is, is you identify with the gender of your birth because you're acknowledging that God made you either male or female. There's no such thing as transgender. No such thing. It's a man-made designation that is an affront to God as the creator and it's an affront to his will as, as it's outlined in scripture. We're out of time. Thanks for joining us today for the Bible line. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.